You can grab a seat and do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 2. We'll be in verses 13 through to 21 this evening. You might remember from last week that we sort of turned the page in John's Gospel and that we moved from the prologue, the, the beginning of the Gospel, to a new section that scholars, theologians call the Book of Signs. They call it that because Jesus does a whole lot of miracles in that book or that particular section of the wider book. It seems to be the main emphasis of this section of John's gospel is the miracles of Jesus and what they say about who Jesus is, what they say about what Jesus is about, ultimately what they say about the glory of Christ. And this theme of glory is something that John introduced earlier in his gospel in chapter one. He says, we've seen his glory, glory of as of the only son from the father. Uh, he says in particular that Jesus' glory is one that is full of grace and truth. Somehow Jesus embodies both of these things, both grace and truth. Sometimes those things seem different to us. They seem at odds with one another. And yet chapter two of John's gospel shows us in its entirety how Jesus does both. How Jesus shows us both grace and how Jesus shows us truth. You might remember last week, that we saw the grace of Jesus at this wedding, the first of his public miracles. He's at the wedding of somebody who's probably one of his friends. And at this wedding, they run out of wine. And so he steps in sort of subtly behind the scenes and provides new wine, the best wine, a symbol of God's blessing and abundance and joy. It is so rich throughout the Old Testament. Jesus shows his grace in that regard. And we come to our passage today where we see what Jesus demonstrating, not just grace, but an expression of the truth looks like. It's a famous passage, and so we'll go ahead and we'll jump right into it. Let me read it for us. We're told in chapter 2, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will in three days raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking about the temple of his body. So, a couple days after the wedding that we talked about last week, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Jesus is Jewish and he's a devout Jewish man. And so part of being devout in the Jewish religion is celebrating the Passover. And the place to do that is in the city where the temple is. And so Jesus pays a visit to the temple. Now it's important to recognize that Jesus going to the temple, that's not just something he's doing because he's a devout Jewish man. Although that is part of it. Actually, there's a sense in which Jesus showing up to the temple, like we found in Mark's gospel that Erica read for us, and like we see in John's gospel, that's actually Jesus making good on this sort of Old Testament expectation. So let me explain what I mean by that to kind of give you a sense of what we're stepping into. If you've been with us over the last couple months, you might remember that we spent way, way long going through the book of 1 Kings. And early on in 1 Kings, many, many, many moons ago, we saw the building of the temple. This is something that couldn't happen early on in Israel's history because there was conflict and you can't really build something when you're constantly worried about being attacked and invaded. But under Solomon, there's peace. And so he builds the temple and they have this ribbon cutting ceremony for the temple in Jerusalem, essentially. There's no ribbon, nothing was cut. 
Um, metaphorically speaking, there's a, a ribbon cutting ceremony. And Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, prays. He has this very long prayer. He says, God, we want this temple to be a house for, of prayer for the nations. We want this to be a place where not just Jewish people come, but people from all over the world who hear about the God of Israel. We want them to come and to worship you here. And something strange happens during Solomon's prayer. We're told that this cloud fills the temple. And that sounds strange, like maybe one of their smoke machines malfunctioned or something like that. And that might be what we would expect in like a modern worship setting. But in the Jewish setting, in particular in the Old Testament setting, the cloud was symbolic of God's presence. And so you see in Exodus, when Moses meets with God on Sinai, God descends in the form of a cloud. He leads the people of Israel in a pillar of smoke. When Jesus ascends into heaven, Luke says in Acts that a a cloud obscured the disciples' sight. That's not just because there was a big cumulonimbus that blocked the disciples' vision. That's symbolic of the presence of God. I don't actually know what a cumulonimbus is, or if I said that right. Oh, thanks, man. Um, No, that's, that's symbolic of God's presence. So when Jesus ascends into the cloud, he's going back into the presence of God. When the cloud fills the temple, God has entered into his house. So there's a sense in which what's being said at the dedication of the temple is this is not just a place where we worship God. This is a place where God dwells among us. But what happens when you go further through the Old Testament, especially when you get to the book of Ezekiel, is that Israel has sinned again and again and again to the point that Ezekiel receives this vision in which he actually sees the presence of God leave the temple. He watches it pack up in this strange sort of machine-like vision and just depart. And then the temple's torn down. The temple's demolished. Eventually, it's Israel is invaded by the Babylonians. They're taken off into captivity. The temple is destroyed. But the temple's rebuilt. And then we get to the second temple. And what's so interesting is when the temple is rebuilt, at the dedication, all of the people who saw the first temple, they weep. They sob. And the new temple's bigger than the old one. But the problem with the new temple is God doesn't dwell in it anymore. God never comes back. The temple is there. Sacrifices are being offered, but God has left the building. And yet you see this thread in in the passages of scripture that Erica read for us, that there's this expectation that maybe someday, especially in Malachi, maybe someday God will return to his temple. But what's he going to find when he gets there? That's the question that the prophets are asking. So, there's maybe a parallel in my life, and I'm sure many of your lives. There, there came a point when I was younger where my parents decided, you know what, you're old enough to watch your brother. We go out and run some errands. And so what essentially happened was they gave me a list of a couple rules. A couple rules of things like, well, you need to make sure that you feed your brother and that he has something to eat. Um, you need to make sure that you don't like, beat your brother up while we're gone. Uh, you need to make sure that the house is clean when we come back. Okay, so Francis and Corey can testify to the fact that one of my spiritual gifts is not meeting deadlines and forgetting about timetables and things like that. Timetables, timelines, due dates, all that stuff. I'm a profoundly forgetful individual. This is something that happened even from when I was younger. And uh, this is what would happen, is my parents would leave and they would leave us a clean house and they would tell me, essentially, make sure that the house is clean when we come back. And I would look at the clock around 2 p.m., knowing they'd come back at 3, and would say to myself, it's an hour. Me and my brother tag team this. We'll be good. And then I would look at the clock again, 2.30. Half an hour, two people cleaning this 
horrible mess that we've made in which we've like just strewn ice cream everywhere because we didn't eat the food they bought for us. We ate the ice cream because our parents aren't home to enforce the rules. And we've like built like a pillow fort and all this stuff. And yeah, 30 minutes, it's fine. It's both of us working together. 20 minutes. The house has still not been fixed because there's a really interesting TV show on. And we need to finish it. And in my mind, we work together and we'll get it done. 10 minutes. There's no way this is getting done. And then mom and dad come home to the house that they left, and it's a total wreck. And my parents were really gracious, but every once in a while, we would see the wrath of Thurman and Betsy. Because the house that they had, they had left entrusted to us, we've made a mess of. And I feel like, in some way, the Lord has seen fit to inflict this on me in some small way with like the cat that I currently have, which is nothing like a human being. But his name's Augustine, and he's not converted and not a Christian, for sure. <laughs> and I'll, I'll leave my house clean, and I'll come home, and he's unwound the entire toilet paper roll. And, and it's a pile on the floor. And he's pushed all of the glasses off of the counter and shattered them on the floor. And he's somehow, with his cat claws and no posable thumbs, taken the bath mat out of my bathroom and put it in the living room. And, and so I, I leave the house in order, and I come back, and it looks like a bomb went off. And I'm angry about it because this is my house and I'm paying to put a roof over your head and meow mix in your bowl. (laughs) How dare you do this? But that's what's actually happening when Jesus visits the temple. What's actually happening when Christ steps into the court, the outer court of the temple in Mark and in John is that Malachi's prophecy is coming true. One day, the God who left the temple is going to come back, and what's he going to find there when he does? And so in the incarnation, God returns to his temple. What does Jesus find? Well, we're told that in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons. The money changers were sitting there, and making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. This is probably of all of the gospels, sort of the harshest that we find Jesus. I mean, he makes a whip and he chases people with it and animals. It's intense. It doesn't make it into any of the veggie tales or the precious moments stories. So why is Jesus so upset? What what has him so angry here? Well, a lot of people have put forward a lot of reasons for why that might be. And probably all of them have something about them that are true. So some people will, will look at the money changers that are in the temple and they'll say that this is what they're upset about. The exchange rate for, for the normal money that's brought in and then the temple currency that's used, that it's exorbitant, that it's unfair. And so it's sort of this price gouging thing. It's like Chuck E. Cheese, right? You go to Chuck E. Cheese with your quarters and they convert them to tokens, but tokens don't really equal quarters. They're taking your money at Chuck E. Cheese. Sorry to ruin your childhood. So maybe that's why Jesus is upset. And that, there's an element of that for sure. And then some people have said, well, maybe it's the fact that they're selling these animals in the temple. And, and, and there's, there's something about this that outrages Jesus. Maybe they're charging too much for the animals that are going to be used in the sacrifices, and that's probably also true. But actually, both of those things, the, the exchange of money at the temple and the selling of animals, they're not necessarily in and of themselves bad things. You see, the reason why they're exchanging money in the temple is because all of the other nation's currency has pagan gods stamped on it. And so there's this sense among Jewish people that do we really want to use a coin with Artemis' face stamped on it to, to worship God with that? Maybe it would be better if we had some Chuck E. Cheese tokens, some religiously neutral coins, 
And, and in so doing, we honored God by not using this money that's been dedicated to other gods to serve the one true God. There's a sense in which there, there's something noble behind that. And then the, the selling of the animals in the temple, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but it's really hard to travel 100 miles with human beings. So can you imagine trying to travel 100 miles to the temple with not just people, but with animals as well? Animals that you would bring to offer sacrifices for the atonement of your sins. A couple months ago, me and my brother went backpacking and we realized about seven or eight hours onto the trail that we actually didn't bring enough water. And so we started rationing the water. It was really cool. It was like Bear Grylls and Survivor Man and all these TV shows. I thought it was great, although I was a little worried that we were going to die. <laughs> but I remember thinking, because pretty often when people go hiking, they'll bring their pets with them. They'll bring like their dog. I would never bring my cat. He would, he would be trouble. But I remember thinking, if I had my dog with me and we ran out of water or realized we hadn't brought enough water, oh my gosh, this would be even worse. And so that's the logic behind them selling the animals at the temple. Rather than you having to transport your sacrifice 100 miles with your family, you just buy it here. So even that in and of itself isn't necessarily the problem, although there's probably some issues of injustice that are going on there, price gouging. Now actually, I think the reason why Jesus is upset is not necessarily what's happening, but where it's happening. The term temple in Jesus' day didn't just mean the building of the temple itself. It was a way of referring to the entire general area. And historians and archaeologists recognize that, that this story, this account in Jesus' life, it's, it's not taking place in the building of the temple itself. It's taking place in the outer court, a place that would have been called the court of the Gentiles. It, it would have been the place in which only a particular group of people were welcome. Because the temple in Jesus' day, it's sacred space. And being sacred space, not everybody is allowed into every location. There's actually one room in the temple that only one person one day out of the year is allowed in, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest can go there. And then there's entire sections of the temple that people who are outside of the nation of Israel can't go into at all. People who are outside of the covenant. Gentiles, most of us in this room. The court of the Gentiles was there so that people who weren't Jewish could fulfill Solomon's prayer that, that the temple would be a house of prayer for the nations. People who weren't part of the Jewish community could come and they could pray and they could worship God. But what's happened in the court of Gentiles is that they've filled it with animals and livestock and commerce and they've turned it into a shopping mall. And so imagine this, this picture for a moment. This is why Jesus gets angry. He steps into this place that is set aside so that people from far off, people who were born in pagan nations but have heard about the God of Israel, this is the place where they can come and they can worship God and they can pray and they can meet with him. And as Jesus steps in, there's money changers heckling over the cost of the temple tax. And Jesus, as he looks out, he sees people herding cattle to stalls where they're going to be sold. And as he continues to look, he sees people arguing over how much a pigeon should be sold for and whether that's really a fair price. And, and in the middle of this whole crowd, he sees maybe one Gentile, one non-Jewish person who closes their eyes and tries to start praying. And someone bumps into him and it kind of shakes him out of it. And then as he continues to look, he sees another non-Jewish person, a Gentile. This is their place. It's for them to pray, to worship God. And they close their eyes and they get ready to start praying. And somebody says, can you please move? We have to herd these cattle past you. 
And as, and, and as another one closes their eyes to pray, Jesus watches him get distracted because there's people arguing over the temple tax next to him and he gets angrier and angrier and angrier because this is the place where these people are, are being called to have an encounter with the one true God. And God's people are so selfish and absent-minded that by their negligence, they're crowding them out. And Jesus is so angry so angry that he makes a whip to drive the animals out. Mark says that he won't even let anybody come back in. He's like, no, these people will be praying here and you're not going to run your cattle through this spot. That's why Jesus gets so upset because they're standing in the way of the mission of God to the world because this place for worship has been desecrated because God's people are so caught up in things that aren't even necessarily bad but are standing in the way of the ultimate good that God wants to do. So two things that we should consider. One, what makes Jesus angry is people standing in the way of the worship of God. And here's what I wonder. We see how angry Jesus gets about that. And I wonder if it has, if it has any bearing on how passive we are when we come to worship. Like I can tell you on Sunday mornings, for as long as I've been at Bay Life, it is a chore to get people to walk into the sanctuary on time so that worship can start. That is so far removed from Jesus' passion for the worship of God. Now, worship is something that we sort of endure, that we sort of make our way through. And, and once that's over, well, then we can hear an interesting sermon with funny stories. That's not how Jesus treats this. This is the angriest we see Jesus in the whole Bible. And it's because worship is that important to him. Is it that important to you? I mean, is prayer that important to you, that important that people can pray and encounter God? It should be. Here's the other thing, the other thing that concerns me. Um, as I've wrestled with this passage today, I'm afraid that if, if Jesus were to step into our community on Thursday nights, he would probably flip some tables as well. And, and here's why I say that. What we see is, is that the people of Israel are so caught up in things that aren't necessarily bad, the selling of animals, the exchange of the temple tax, but they're so caught up in that that they don't realize that they are crowding out the very people that God is calling to them. And if I can just be frank, as, as your pastor, and I don't say this to be mean or to be harsh, but I, I sit here on Thursday nights, every Thursday night. I'm here just about every week. And here's one of the things that I notice. I see people who are here for their first time, new people, who sit by themselves. Well, so many of us talk to our friends. Well, they stand by themselves, rather, and then they sit down, and they sit by themselves. Well, many of us sit with our friends from Life Group. And then they walk out to their car, and they go home without anyone talking to them while we all go out to eat. None of these are bad things. Hanging out with your friends is good. Sitting with people you know is good. Going out to eat is good. But in these good things, we crowd out and neglect the people that God is bringing to us. We, we make this environment such that people who have come here to worship God, they feel unimportant, they feel neglected, they feel like this is not the place for them. And what it ultimately says, what it said in Jesus' day and what it says in our day is, yes, God cares that you're here, but we kind of have better things to do. We have animals to sell. We have taxes to exchange. 
and Jesus in his fury flips tables. And I'll tell you, um, I'm afraid he would flip some tables among us. And, and I pray that he flips some tables in all of our hearts. That we recognize that, that the, the house of God is meant to be a house of prayer to the nations. That the people of God are meant to be a temple in which all can be gathered and can worship and pray and encounter the living God. Of course, Jesus making a whip and chasing people out of the temple causes a little bit of a stir, as it would today, as it should today. And so the religious leaders come up to him, and they ask him, what sign do you show for doing these things? Who do you think you are? You're chasing our people with a whip. And, and Jesus' response is cryptic. He says, destroy this temple, and I will in three days raise it up. It doesn't sound like an answer to the question at all. What, what sign do you give us that you can do these things, that you have the right to do this? And he says, destroy the temple, and I'll, I'll build it back in three days. And this is what you'll see again and again in the gospel, is that Jesus says things that you, as somebody who's read the whole gospel or maybe knows the story of the gospel, it makes sense to you, but nobody, when Jesus says it, understands what he's talking about. And so the religious leaders hear Jesus say that, and he's standing in the shadow of this giant physical temple, and they kind of look at it, and they look back at him. And who knows, Jesus may or may not be buff. He was a carpenter, but nonetheless, he's not rebuilding that temple in three days. And so they say what is patently obvious. It took 46 years to build this, hundreds of people. There's no way. There's no way you will rebuild this. And what we're told in John's gospel is that it's only after Jesus' resurrection that the people who heard him speak understand what he's saying, that he's talking about the temple that is his body. Because ultimately what we see in the beginning of John's gospel, what we see throughout John's gospel is just as the, de- the temple was the, the dwelling place of God among man, the person of Jesus is the fullness of God made man. And that that temple that Jesus is standing in front of is ultimately meant to point to the temple standing in front of it. Jesus is not saying, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's saying, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's saying, I am the true temple and you can destroy it, but in three days I'll rebuild it. He's ultimately saying that the sign that I give you, the evidence that I give you that I have the right to do this is me. I'm my own evidence. And there's this incredible thing that's happening. There's an empty temple behind Jesus and the true temple of Jesus is judging it. What's so interesting though, when we see what Jesus means that he is the temple is that we can look at what Paul says that in Christ, he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. There's not a court of the Gentiles in Jesus. There's not a separate place for separate people in, in the ultimate final temple that is Jesus, all the walls have been torn down and everyone stands in the Holy of Holies together. And and we better act like it. That's ultimately what Jesus says. This is why there is not tables of the Lord. There is the table of the Lord. This is why when Peter refuses to eat with Gentiles, Paul says, you've denied the gospel itself. 
You're going back to the temple that had walls, but in the true temple, which is Jesus, those walls have been torn down. And so we, as a ministry, take communion here every week, which is what we're getting ready to do now. But here's what I would invite you to do. I I offer the same invitation every week because I think it's as true every week. But if you're a Christian, baptized, walking in repentance, as you come up to take communion, as you stand in line to, to grab the elements, can I ask you to look at the people who are in line with you? And like, if you've never met them before, you've never talked to them, maybe you should. Because the wall has been torn down. You're coming to the same table together. You might as well get to know your fellow dinner guests. Lest Jesus flip over more tables in anger. So that we can together worship him in spirit and in truth. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you. Uh, that in your grace and your desire to draw all people to yourself, you, you bring this harsh truth that you flip these tables in anger and in zeal to see people worship you, frustrated at the way that your people so often inhibit that. God, I pray that you would convict us where we've been such a people that tonight as we come to the table together, you would use it as a turning point in our lives to to see that the walls have been torn down in Christ who is the true temple. Lord, we ask that you convict us, that you'd encourage us, that you'd build us up, that you'd do all of these things in Jesus' name. And we say amen.